I mean, to me, like what I came to think of is what the American sort of project is in a lot of ways, which is the aligning of, you know, state and private interests, right? And the kind of mutual co-optation. And, and the question is, how broad is that co-optation going to be? Or how, how broadly uh, based will the, the private interests that are aligned with the state interests, right? Welcome to Reviving Growth Keynesianism a podcast about economic thought from the mid-20th century and why it matters to us today. Our goal is to fan the flames of a growing conversation on inequality, growth, and aggregate demand, so that we may hopefully arrive at a place of better well-being for all. Hi, I'm your co-host, Nick Johnson, and I'm coming to you today from the University of Chicago's Center for Spatial Data Science. Chris Hong, I'm a PhD student at the University of Chicago Department of History, and I'm an intern at the Center for Spatial Data Science. And I'm your co-host, Robert Manduka, coming to you from the Department of Sociology at the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're welcoming to the podcast Ariel Ron, a professor of history at Southern Methodist University, whose new book, Grassroots Leviathan, promises to give us a new image of Northern politics in the antebellum period democratic developmentalism as an American tradition, and a new interpretation of the causes of the Civil War. We're really excited to have him on because we've all been nerding out about the agrarian political economy of America and how that shapes the 20th century and beyond, and that just so happens to be the subject of his book. So, Ariel, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So the, the first question that I wanted to ask you is just like, how did you get into this? You know, it's kind of it's kind of clear just based on your writing, like how much you love the details of farming and uh, the sort of the culture of it. Uh, so, were you, were you always into it? Were you raised on a farm, or <laughs> I'm really glad that you put it in those terms that I managed to fool you then, because uh, no, I'm I'm uh, <laughs> uh, the closest I've come to uh, a farm. I mean, I, I'm so I'm from Israel originally, and I, I do have um, some relatives who are uh, farmers on a I mean, real farmers on a moshav and on a kibbutz. Uh, although very different, I think, kind of agriculture than what uh, I talk about in this book. Um, but, you know, since I, I'm constantly afraid that I'll be exposed for, uh, you know, a, an interloper in, the, in, in agriculture and you know, who doesn't really know anything about farming, I, I try to take things seriously and, and, and learn something about it. Uh, I, I should still say that, I mean, you know, I, I really gain an appreciation for how uh, a complex um, a job farming is. And that I, I still know very little about it from a you know a really workaday practical uh, perspective, especially how it's done today. Um, but I mean, you know, I, I, I spent some time uh, learning about it, and it's interesting uh, and important thought. Um, the sort of to answer the question of how I got into this, because the the majority of people in this period were uh, either farmers themselves or very closely connected to the agricultural economy. And yet, uh, I think we probably have many more studies on, uh, for the antebellum U.S. and particularly the antebellum North on basically urban people, whether it's the, the middle class or the working class. And those are important groups too, but they're, they're just not the majority. Yeah. And I, I guess moving on from that, Anyone who reads your introduction, the introduction to Grassroots Leviathan uh, will kind of immediately realize, as I did, that it's a very, it's a deeply uh, historiographical book. Um, and I was wondering if for, for listeners, for non-Americanists, if you could maybe summarize, you know, the, the targets that your book aims its main arguments at and maybe the insufficiencies in the existing historiography. This could be, you know, the history of capitalism. Of, of capitalism and slavery, even, you know, older Marxist paradigms, social 
interpretations of the Civil War that maybe um, you'd like to lay out before we kind of dig in deeper into your arguments? Sure. So, um, I mean, so also, you know, another way to answer Nick's question about how I got into this was my first uh, seminar in graduate school, you know, we, we did U.S. history, we covered um, the Civil War, and we learned that uh, there used to be uh, a popular uh, interpretation sort of known as the economic interpretation of the Civil War. It's still quite popular among the public. I mean, I, I have to, uh, it, you know, extinguish it repeatedly with my students every semester. The simple version of that is that the North was industrial, the South was agricultural, and that, um, you know, the industrial North crushed the agricultural South uh, and brought the United States into uh, modernity. And there's there, there's sort of, you know, there, there are both sort of uh, a pro and anti versions of that story. I mean, the, the Marxist version is, is sort of pro, uh, you know, it was like a necessary movement of history. Uh, the anti version is, you know, the South was this, you know, uh, uh, agricultural agrarian, uh, uh, you know, I don't know what Moonlight and Magnolia's kind of place that was, you know, dragged uh, uh, kicking and screaming into the modern world against its will. And, and historians have rejected that for a long time, and they've, and they've rejected it um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, so one reason is that, in fact, the North was primarily agricultural, and it just didn't really make much sense as a description of the antebellum North to say that it was industrial. Now, it is true that there were more, there was more industry in the North and the South, or what industry there was in the country was primarily in the North, and that's very significant for the outcome of the Civil War itself, but it doesn't explain why the war happened. So, so that was one, that's one reason that historians have rejected. The other one is because it tended to downplay the importance of slavery, right? That, that, the, that the division line was between, you know, uh, urban industrial society and, and rural agricultural, not between uh, slave and, and free. So, so but, but the problem, in my view, was that the, the rejection of the industrial-urban d- divide meant the rejection of the so-called economic interpretation of the Civil War. And I thought, well, there should be another economic interpretation of the war, at least an attempt at one that focuses on agriculture. That's how I got into things. And as I, I, I got into it deeper, I, I discovered what I, I came to call the agricultural reform movement, which is this large social movement of uh, farmers organizations. You know, I, I saw it as a, 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 you know, a complicated story of political economy that I would not reduce to a simple economic interpretation, but in which you know, economic development play a, a large and significant role, and particularly the way that those developments become tied to uh, policy issues and control of the federal government. So what kind of numbers are we talking about here when you say that the North was primarily agricultural and you know more industrial than the South, but not particularly industrial? I think um, so the, the North is overall about 80% rural and even in the Northeast, so that's New England and the Mid-Atlantic states, it's almost two-thirds rural. So even in the most urbanized part, uh, industrial parts, two-thirds rural. Uh, I think 59% of the workforce is in agriculture, 15% in manufacturing. Uh, So, I mean, those are some indications, right? You know, even after the Civil War, it remains uh, a largely agricultural country. Uh, You know, it's a little, it's sometimes hard to to part. I mean, so so I I cite, um, this is the work of Olmsted and Rohde, two um, economic historians uh, who show that uh, I think in the early 1880s, the the livestock industry and sort of associated investments is is larger. There's there's more invested in livestock than in railroads. Um, but those are national figures. So you know what that means exactly for the North. I'm not I'm not sure at that in the 1880s. But certainly you know before the Civil War. I mean, the North is like I said, 80 percent rural. Um, so we're talking overwhelming supermajorities here. 
Yeah, right. Clearly. And, and I'll, I'll, one more. I mean, it, it, it seems obvious to people that that's the case, right? I mean, Lincoln says something like, um, you know, the farmers, by the very nature of things, are the large majority of the country, right? I mean, they just assume that it's going to be a rural society for a long time to come. Yeah, that's a really interesting place to start. And I just, you know, I think you do a, a great job in laying out the book of just like, you know, we have these inter previous interpretations, but like, let's just start from the fact that the overwhelming population was rural and was in agriculture. And like, they must have done something to the political economy or it must've been some sort of actor. And let's, you know, try to figure out what that, uh, what impact they did have. Yeah, I mean, and you know, look, everything surrounding the Civil War. Well, isn't it easy, Robert? I mean, they're just a sack of potatoes. Uh, they, they, they have no capacity to represent themselves. They have no agency. That's the idiocy of rural life. They just do what they're told, and it's the the industrial bourgeoisie and proletariat that lead. <laughs> right. Yeah, and and that's and that I think is the is the the sort of going uh, interpretation, even for people who are not you know quoting the 18th Brumaire, but that that's the view, right? I mean, the, the other thing is that, you know, everything around Civil War history is so focused on the politics and there's so much political material to go through that, it, you know, you, you can really spend a, a lifetime going through all those sources and then you'll just never get to uh, a bunch of other sources about just what was going on in, in, in people's uh, daily lives. And so, you know, I made this conscious decision to rely on the uh, secondary literature for the most part for a lot of the politics and just uh, go really deep into the agricultural sources, which it turned out are extremely numerous. Um, and not just, you know, numerous in terms of what's survived, but were extremely numerous at the time and circulating very, very widely, right? So I, I show, for instance, that the, the, um, the before the USDA, the predecessor uh, to the USDA, the Department of Agriculture is something called the Agricultural Bureau in the U.S. Patent Office, and they published these annual reports in 1850s that in, in these editions are printed up in these editions that uh, arrival Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was a runaway, just you know, record-breaking bestseller in the 1850s. Right? And nobody knew this. Nobody knew this. I I I, I, just, I found this out when I was doing research at the Library Company of Philadelphia, who's Librarian Jim Green is uh, uh, an expert on book history and publishing history in antebellum America. And when I, I brought this to him at first, he said, this is astounding. I, I had no idea that uh, these were published in these kinds of numbers. So there's just a ton of material that was never that, you know, was always known to ex have existed, but it was never examined for policy implications. And that, you know, I think I, I suggest is a function of this yeoman myth that, you know, continues also to sort of stalk uh, American history and historiography, the idea that these were, um, you know, these independent farmers who uh, were just, they just wanted to get government off their backs, right? And that's, I mean, from today's perspective, that's just completely absurd, right? I mean, agriculture is so thoroughly uh, uh, supported by um, government subsidies and, and various other government programs. But it turns out that, first of all, this was always the case, right? I mean, you know, the, the the army, the survey, the rectangular survey, you know, the land offices, right? There was always government support for agricultural expansion and development, but it it shifts in this period towards a new set of more intensive sort of uh, scientific agricultural policy preferences. But you know, just nobody was looking for that, and nobody thought to connect. You know, why is it that we get the U.S. Department of Agriculture at you know the exact moment that slavery is destroyed? And I, I think these things are you know deeply connected. I guess I'd be interested sort of thinking about this like scientific agriculture and and these um, volumes that were published. I wonder if you could just walk us through a little bit, like what was the agricultural reform movement? You know, where did it originate? What was it trying to do? You know, who was acting in it? What sort of, act, you know, what, what sorts of things were they doing? Because it seems like this is, you know, this huge social movement that as you describe, we don't really think about that much or know that, that much about. 
And maybe yeah, something so about the, the stakes of calling it a social movement. Yeah, okay, good. Um, well, all right, so, so first of all, what, what, what was it? You know, I, I ground it, first of all, in, in agricultural conditions uh, that are changing, you know, really throughout the period of uh, Euro-American settlement, but um, particularly uh, more intensively towards the end of the colonial period and after the American Revolution, as, you know, population gets denser, there have been more generations on the land in the East, uh, soil fertility is declining, there are uh, increasing uh, crop pest uh, problems, uh, there's competition from uh, newly opened areas and, and soil erosion is becoming a problem. So some, you know, folks are looking for ways to uh, improve it uh, and make uh, agriculture more intensive and sustainable uh, and take advantage of some new technologies. Uh, they uh, bring in, they try to adapt, emulate and adapt European, uh, northern, northwestern European agricultural techniques, mostly from uh, Britain, uh, which themselves sort of came from the Dutch. This is initially led in the uh, period after the American Revolution by the kind of people who in the, in the British context have been called agrarian patriots in the, in the U.S. case, not quite uh, as uh, aristocratically powerful, but the landed gentry who are improvement oriented sort of enlightenment types who have access to uh, material from Europe and uh, um, also have a, a kind of newly nationalist consciousness about the need to uh, improve and raise the, the economic capacity of the United States to make it an a truly independent country, right? So uh, I'm talking about people like uh, David Humphreys, who was an aide-de-camp to George Washington, Chancellor Livingston in New York, a major landowner, and there's also some uh, uh, people in the South doing this. So they uh, uh, start some uh, what they were then called uh, agricultural promotion societies to try to promote this sort of thing. And they uh, eventually succeed in convincing some state legislatures to uh, provide them with some funds, particularly to put on agricultural fairs that will help promote their ideas. That brings their uh, organizations under increasing uh, scrutiny at a sort of a period of uh, democratization or at least sort of sort of popularization of politics. And um, the gentry are found to be elitist snobs, essentially. And there's a backlash against public subsidies for what they're doing. But within a few years, um, a sort of a new movement arises, you know, from the ashes of that, uh, really grounded in, in the rise of an agricultural press that is an independent uh, set of farmers periodicals. Uh, and in the 1840s, they begin demanding renewed state subsidies um, and then and, and, and states begin enacting these subsidies. And then you get the full-fledged, what I call an agricultural reform movement, which is really centered on these three institutions, agricultural societies, uh, agricultural fairs that occur usually in the fall and draw just enormous numbers of people, and the agricultural periodicals. So those are the sort of three elements, and they're, in, in, they're, they're invested in promoting agricultural improvement, agricultural reform, and, and what they call scientific agriculture. And just to briefly answer uh, Nick's question about what is involved in calling it a social movement, I, I'd be interested to hear uh, Robert's thoughts on this as a sociologist, because I, I mean, I draw, I think, you know, somewhat um, peremptorily on the uh, sociological uh, research, you know, the Tilly Tallow, am I, am I remembering his name correctly? That, I think that's work on social movements. But I, I mean, I, so I, I say two things. So historically, there's a shift from the early, you know, patrician gentry uh, led reform movement to this more popular one, which is more is much more like a social movement, because it doesn't have the same kind of, you know, clear elite uh, uh, led, I don't know, sort of hierarchical uh, uh, social structure. Uh, also, I think, um, it, and it sort of fits a lot of the things you think about a social movement, you know, it has uh, a kind of movement culture around this idea of scientific agriculture, it involves lots and lots of people, it makes demands on the state uh, for new kinds of policies. But unlike the uh, contentious politics model, uh, in which, you know, paradigmatically social movements engage in protest demonstrations, uh, civil disobedience, and the like, it's interested in, in lobbying and sort of working 
to build up government capacities uh, that it will be able to, if not fully control, at least significantly influence. One thing I was wondering, so is this, especially, I guess, in the later sort of more mass phase of the um, agricultural reform movement, do you see it, was this like primarily about sort of self-betterment of like, you know, farmers being like, I want to know how I can get more crops out of this, out of my land? Or was it more, I mean, in, in the initial period, it sounds like it was more of sort of a planned, like top down sort of, you know, we ought to have a country that's capable of producing more things. So yeah, like how much of it was a sort of thought through preconceived idea versus just people kind of wanting to make their farms more productive? Um, I think it's both. And I think that the, the relationship between the two is is in many ways the, the key to the whole thing. And um, I mean, to me, like what I came to think of is what the American sort of project is in a lot of ways, which is the aligning of, you know, state and private interests, right? And the kind of mutual co-optation. And, and the question is, how broad is that co-optation going to be? Or how how broadly uh, based will the, the private interests that are aligned with the state interests, right? And in the Patrician uh, gentry period, the gentry are clearly interested in improving their own uh, production and their own profits, uh, but they think that they're serving nationalist goals. And I think they genuinely think they're serving nationalist goals and they, they hope to sort of bring along uh, others uh, with them. Uh, but they expect that, you know, deference to their leadership. And when that deference is not, uh, you know, is sort of withdrawn, uh, it's withdrawn around this issue of their sort of, you know, um, unproblematic uh, belief that, of course, you know, they will profit and the country will, uh, what's good, in other words, like, what's good for uh, uh, Chancellor Livingston is good for America, right? I mean, that's, that's what that, that, that's what that early phase was. Nobody and, likes and, rich guys showing off and, <laughs> and telling you what to do with your farm, right? Yeah, right. But people do uh, want better farms. And so these, these fairs actually do like take on life of their own. Yeah, right, exactly. And so in the next phase, it's like, it's a lot of people, a lot more people involved, but it, it does, I mean, it needs to be said, and I, I don't stress this in the book, but, you know, this is a middle class and up movement, right? This is not uh, a poor people's movement. I, I'm not, I don't think it's a rich people's movement either in the, in the sense of uh, uh, Isaac Martin's book, but it's, it's, it, I, I mean, it's, it's a sort of middle class and aspirational um, movement. And, and so, it's pretty deeply connected to, uh, you know, whatever middle-class politics are in this um, country and the sort of complicated uh, and, and ambiguous uh, direction that they lead in. And I think that that's, I mean, I don't do a whole lot with the post-Civil War period, but I, I think that this becomes really um, fused into the structure of the USDA, um, a, a somewhat of a internal conflict between uh, those who um, uh, want the most sort of efficient profitable big agriculture and 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 go later in the century with the biggest farmers and those who are looking for a way to maintain what they understand to be the core of America which is some kind of sense of agrarian democracy with widespread farm ownership and operation and in a few cases people who have an even broad, more broader you know racially inclusive view but i think not so many of those at least not until i don't know maybe the 1930s but um it's it's almost as if it's like a tension sort of built into this enlightenment notion of emulation that you kind of talk about in the book where you need like a hierarchy sort of, you need a model to emulate. Um, and this is kind of picked up by especially theorists of the Scottish enlightenment, like Adam Smith and so forth. But yeah, this powerful idea of emulation can be a bottom-up process as I think much more so in, in, in the period in the US you're talking about than let's say in the British empire or something like that. But at the same time, it needs models for people for the aspirant middle class to emulate so it, yeah it's 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 kind of a built-in contradiction almost in your book 
Yeah. So so, kind of like uh, going off of Robert's point is like mm -hmm. okay, so this this is kind of like a self help movement, right? Mm -hmm. This is um, it's it's a uh, it's an attempt for farmers to do for themselves uh, rather than to ha like have somebody else do it, right? And is I guess this the reason that I I want to bring this up is because you talk about the way that they engage politics and you say that it's a kind of anti politics because partisanship at this point kind of defines politics. Mm -hmm. And partisanship is all about the spoils system. It's like corruption, right? Like giving people government jobs and a handout. But these farmers don't really want a handout. Is that is that like an, an accurate characterization of the movement? I mean, I think the handout terminology is not one that, or that idea isn't really one that's present there because there isn't, they don't have social welfare programs really or and the handouts that they get which is land they don't think of as handouts i mean you know if you want to talk about handouts the homestead act is the you know the greatest handout in american history and it's not even close um uh if it, if, if there's anything close to it it's the um something which almost nobody talks about although there's a very good book about it um in the 1850s congress granted 60 million acres to veterans of the uh U.S. Mexico War and previous wars, which they, you know, were effectively understood to be a pension uh, because they would sell those land claims. They would never settle those lands. Um, so, um, so, so land, you know, that's been a handout for a long time. So, um, but you know, I, I think that um, it, it's it's in some ways a self-help movement, sure, um, but it's a lot more than that um, because, first of all, they 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 do want. Uh, eventually they want government to step in and, and take on certain roles. And those include uh, regulating these new markets for uh, artificial fertilizers uh, and, and to some degree uh, implements and, and other things that are, are hard to evaluate, particularly the chemical fertilizers are, are hard for them to evaluate. They want the government to gather information uh, and, and provide it to them statistics. There, there are, there are some other things like I, I you know, I talk about this, this like issue, which is sort of funny, but amazingly just, uh, all over the country for a century, um, taxes on dogs that are uh, destroying sheep. Yeah, so, so, I mean, they, they want the government to be doing various things. Right? <laughs> and I think it's more than a self-help movement because it really is an, a, an economic development project as well. And, and it's tied into, you know, yes, improvement of my farm, but also uh, the development of my town, the development of my region in a, in a period in which sort of everywhere in America is you know, are many, many places, maybe not everywhere, imagining themselves to be, you know, moving forward towards, you know, higher land values and, uh, you know, more stuff in this locale. Uh, so, you know, you see this in these county histories, which are always a kind of narration of this sort of movement from so-called wilderness, you know, to uh, the modern, you know, the current high state of civilization that we are witnessing around us and improving every day, as the county um, historians say. Yeah, that's, that's, so that's, Tom, Thomas Jefferson line that you quote on the on the dog question was pretty harrowing. I have <laughs> yeah. To say. yeah, right. Jefferson wanted to exterminate all dogs, except yeah. for his own dogs. But yeah, never trust a man whose politics <laughs> is anti-dog. <laughs> the reason I wanted to ask about the self-help aspect of it is because farmers have, and you emphasize this multiple times, is that they have this, I guess, from a certain perspective, paradoxical quality that they're both capital and labor, and that combined with the fact that they are just the sheer numerical majority of the country at the time means that they can make a kind of hegemonic claim that's pretty close to true, right? Like what's, what's good for farmers, it actually is pretty good for the industrialists and, and everybody else, right? I don't know. You know, I have to say like, 
It's really hard to speak of farm. I mean, although I do it all the time in this book because you kind of have to, but I mean, and, and because I, I feel like the first point I had to make was like, just, just people need to pay attention to these uh, people and, 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 but not in the sense, not assume that there are these yeoman types, but you know, it's hard to speak categorically about farmers because there's so many different arrangements. There's so many different um, in some ways, economies that they're uh, uh, engaged in. You know, the question of like how widespread is tenancy farm labor that is permanently sort of proletarianized farm labor in the in the Northeast uh, in this period, I think is not a, actually a, a settled question at all. Mm-hmm. And some people will sort of tell you, you know, actually, most most of these people are tenants. Um, and, and I don't think that that's um, true, except maybe, you know, like whatever it is, there, there's a large number of tenants and there's a large number of, of, of owner operators and a, a more fine grained analysis of the sort of, um, you know, really local bases of uh, involvement and power for this agricultural reform movement might help to shed light on, on that question. Um, for instance, Even if Tennessee is widespread, would that falsify their claims, their hegemonic claims? No, but it would it would it might change uh, whether they were sort of aligned with this reform movement or not, right? Because I see, um, right? So so in the um, in the Hudson uh, River Valley where there were these manorial lords left over from the Dutch period that the English continued, right? That had been arrangements with tenants that were you know quasi feudal and that had been subject to you know they they. they the tenants had risen up against the landlords on several occasions in the colonial period. And again, uh, in the 1820s, uh, 30s and 40s, in what was a, a huge and ongoing sort of political imbroglio in, in the state of New York, and I think somewhat in, in New Jersey uh, as well. Farmers in those areas, I mean, they, they split like in, in some places, um, they just want to have nothing to do with this agricultural reform because they associate it with the, the landlords and with the sort of, com, you know, the, the bigwigs. And in other parts, they what they wanted was to gain ownership of their own land so that they could participate uh, and could take a part in sort of agricultural reform and scientific agriculture. So, I mean, I, so I think, you know, th- there's room for there's a lot of room for um, more fine grain analysis that will some that will will will, you know, generalized, but in a way that's more nuanced than we've done up, up till now, because what we have is a bunch of community studies that say in this place, it was tenant uprising. And in this place, it was, you know, yeoman farmers and in this place it's this. And then we have people say, well, it's all, it's, 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 it's mostly just, you know, it's yeoman farmers or whatever. And, and we need something um, better than that. You know, we, I, I, this is again, I mean, we have, we, I think we have like much better understanding of like uh, labor and working men's movements in this period than we do of uh, farmers, despite the fact that, you know, farmers are much, larger group. And, uh, you know, in terms of the Civil War, the key political change leading to the Civil War is the dissolution of the Whig Party and the rise of the Republican Party. And what's significant about the Republican Party is they're an all-Northern Party, right? They only have Northern members. That's enough for them to win the presidency. That's enough for them to take control of Congress. And everybody has always known that the Republican base is in the countryside. It's not in the cities, right? It's small town America and rural America. It's not all parts of rural America, North, I should say, but that's clearly where its base is. And yet the the reigning interpretation for the last 50 years, uh, the free labor synthesis that Eric Foner proposed is, you know, it's really grounded in labor and urban history. You know, Foner is way too good a historian not to know where these people are, not to understand it and embraces more than just uh, workers. Nevertheless, I think his categories are really uh, grounded in, you know, basically a sort of Marxian labor uh, conception of um, the world. And I think that's inadequate to dealing these 
people because as Nick said, they're labor and capital both. And and I don't know if it's helpful to say that they're labor and capital both. We maybe need something else to talk. Yeah. I mean, this is a an interesting, I guess I was, I'm curious, could you describe a little bit like how they, the Republican party managed to square this and create this, this sort of movement that unified both cities and countryside, you know, and farmers, I guess. You talk about like the Republican developmental synthesis and how, you know, you would expect, or like in most places, you know, the things that are good for industrialists, namely tariffs, are bad for agriculture. But they were able to figure out a way to actually align these two groups um, towards the same ends. Right, right. So so initially, the, the, the key point is that um, Southern agriculture, slave-based agriculture, is much more oriented towards exports, the traditional colonial transatlantic economy, one that's focused on high-value commodities that can travel long distance. Uh, Northern agriculture was always more domestically oriented, partly for climatic reasons. You know, New England is climatically fairly similar to England. They really didn't have a lot of agricultural stuff to export. There is significant exportation of uh, wheat and some even dairy products uh, from the mid-Atlantic states, particularly to um, uh, the Caribbean. But after the revolution, a lot of that trade is cut off. And um, basically, there's a reorientation, particularly in the north, of uh, the entire economy towards the domestic sphere uh, rather than transatlantic markets. And a, a lot of northern agriculture becomes oriented towards supplying domestic, most, the vast majority of northern agriculture becomes mm-hmm. oriented towards uh, supplying domestic uh, markets, whether that's dairy and uh, meat products, hay, which is like an actually a very important uh, commodity for cities to be able to operate because you can't do anything without horses, manufacturers uh, too, even railroads, you, you just need horses for everything, fresh fruit, um, all kinds of things like that, right? So, so. Um, so, so the initial argument that economic nationalists make is that farmers will do better with a home market, right? And this uh, really um, takes off after the, the end of the War of 1812, the end of the Napoleonic Wars brings to a close a period of high demand from Europe for uh, American uh, agricultural foodstuffs. Then there's a panic, uh, a major financial crisis, and the northern and the national the economic nationalists in the north say we need home market. We need to uh, expand the manufacturing sector that can buy up the produce from the agricultural sector, and 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 a lot of farmers accept this. And in the in the north, where we have much more densely settled communities. I mean, the rural areas are denser in the north than they are in the south. You know, the distinction between the agricultural and non-agricultural sector is not so clear cut because a lot of people work in both sort of sectors, and they they go back and forth between them, and they have family members who operate in manufacturing. And in addition to that, in a period in which uh, industrial power is supplied to a very large degree by water power, a lot of manufacturers are dispersed uh, uh, all throughout the countryside. And they provide a very clear local immediate market for uh, farmers' goods, right? So so there's this home market develop- that argument, and there's a domestic economy that actually does, in fact, develop. And that really seems to work well. And the next phase of this, the one that I... Um, ascribe uh, primarily to a political economist uh, named Henry uh, Charles Carey is that sort of deepens this connection uh, is the argument that, you know, farmers will do much better with with scientific agriculture, and particularly new kinds of labor saving tools and implements, most famously the mechanical reaper, but there's a host of others. And in addition, uh, chemical fertilizers, uh, and that all those things come from the manufacturing sector, right? And so it's in farmers' interest, not just to develop the manufacturing sector because it's a market, but also because it will supply them with you know, production goods, right? With with capital goods, with input goods. So, and, and that becomes the, the the core of the, I think the Republican uh, economic vision and the sort of bad guys or the ones that are lined up against are the um, 
uh, slaveholding Southern planters and their uh, merchant allies in the North, the, the commercial, the financial and commercial businessmen who uh, financed the transatlantic trade uh, and um, build a sort of banking uh, on that. Right. So, you know, it, the, 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 it's always, um, you know, the, the Republicans get pretty sanctimonious about this. Um, it's it, the, the, the vision is obviously not entirely clear cut, but that, that in any case is, is the way that it's presented. So if it's, Farmers and industrialists versus the merchants. Where does slavery fit into this? I mean, because you, you might think slavery is is it's agricultural. Why aren't they a part of this developmental vision? So so part of it is because they're committed to an export economy, right? And and they do not they will not benefit they they do not see the tariff as uh, beneficial to them. Um, they so the farmers in the north are, are willing to buy the tariff because what's good for manufacturing is good for them, right? And it increases, it expands their domestic markets and, and uh, potentially uh, supplies them with these new technologies that they want. But the uh, um, uh, planters in the South don't see it that way. Uh, so economically, they, they, their interests are not aligned. But I, I mean, I think that for the planters, the, the politics are more important than the economics, really. And it, it's about power. Um, and uh, if Northerners can pass a tariff, that uh, is an intolerable imposition of power from uh, uh, the North. Uh, I, 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 I think that, you know, the planters are sort of sociologically uh, conditioned to think that they must rule. But uh, in addition to that, they, are, uh, uh, they understand that they are a minority uh, in a large country that um, uh, is increasingly dominated by uh, non-slave territory, the population in non-slave territory. One of the key demographic changes over this period, right, from the revolution, from the, the constitution, let's say, when the when a sort of deal is brokered between the, the emerging free states, uh, not quite free states yet, but about to be free states and the slave states, the change from that moment to the Civil War is that the North grows in population much faster than the South. Um, so, um, you know, by the 1830s, 40s, 50s, it becomes clear to Southern planters that um, they're the minority. And the only way that um, they will be able, they feel that they will be able to maintain uh, their system is by ensuring that they have, they control the federal government, right? They have at least a veto power. So uh, anything that goes against their interests, really in any way, becomes perceived as a fundamental threat to their power. And the tariff is one of those things. Um, as I try to show the, the calls from Northern agricultural reformers for new federal agencies that will uh, assist Northern farmers with their sort of uh, ambitions to achieve scientific agriculture, these calls for a Department of Agriculture for uh, land-grant universities that will teach agriculture, um, these become interpreted by uh, Southern planters as just an intolerable federal um, intervention, uh, potentially an intolerable federal intervention into uh, agriculture uh, which for them will inevitably involve slavery, right? And and they're afraid that these Northerners who are, um, you know- yeah, So I had a question about that. Is that a realistic fear? Because like the US, so like the Land Grant Act just wants to set up colleges to train farmers to do farming better. And the USDA yeah. hands out seeds and it says, okay, this manure is crap. It doesn't work. I, that pun not intended, but uh, <laughs> you know, they, they, they adjudicate marketplace claims about like technology, right? It's like a consumer protection type thing for farmers. Right. I mean, yeah. is that realistically a threat to slavery? I mean, surely the USDA would never have had the power to actually free the slaves. Or so is it, or is it just like this pure like fantasia of dominance that the sort of despotic psychology of slaveholding like you said they just need to dominate things? Let me so let me just be really 
clear about a couple of things. First of all, uh, what I'm gonna I'm gonna lay out the argument for why it's a threat, but I should say that this argument is somewhat circumstantial. There is no like smoking gun of like a southerner saying this is exactly what's gonna happen. But 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 I should say the circumstantial argument is uh, I think uh, fairly convincing when you put the pieces together, right? So um, it, it's well established in the uh, political historiography that Republicans. Uh, well, first abolitionists and then uh, Republicans were going to use, were, were planning to use whatever federal powers they had to um, uh, begin to hem in and weaken uh, slavery. And one of the strategies that abolitionists proposed for doing this was to use uh, federal patronage powers to strengthen uh, anti-slavery or sort of, you know, uh, slavery skeptical politicians in the border southern states, particularly Maryland, where slavery was already in some ways on its way out in parts of the state uh, and Delaware. Um, uh, and that if they could flip Maryland and they could uh, um, end slavery in the District of Columbia, where Congress had the clear uh, constitutional authority to do so, then they would be putting pressure on Virginia uh, and that, you know, gradually they could uh, uh, hem in uh, and 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 extinguish uh, uh, slavery. How realistic was that as a plan? That I, I, I'm not sure how to assess, but it certainly seems, but they were certainly saying this. And um, it certainly seems realistic to imagine the, um, the Department of Agriculture as one agency where you would pursue uh, this kind of strategy. How effective this would have been, um, I, I, it's hard for me to say, but I, I think planters are genuinely concerned about a kind of federal apparatus that is, uh, hostile or indifferent to slavery uh, uh, developing. And that that's, you know, somewhat of a, of a, of a threat. How so big there's of a, a kind of them? like a domino theory where anything that strengthens the hand of free farming will kind of inevitably encircle. I think you show, you, you show kind of these Southern, Southern Democrats vocalize their, their, their anxieties about, you know, the wedge argument that, that, and it, it, it kind of, goes back to their kind of strict constructionist view of the constitution that, that, that it's just going to expand federal powers. Um, it's kind of like a, a, a treadmill or something like that, a treadmill effect. Right. Right. And, you know, um, they're very selective about the strict constructionist argument, right? So when they can expand federal powers to uh, strengthen their hand in uh, catching, uh, remanding back to slavery, uh, those who have managed to run away from slavery there, they have no qualms about doing that. But uh, when the, uh, the federal government is going to be expanded for purposes that they don't approve of, then they're opposed to it. And, and I mean, you know, one of the things that I think the reasons they're, they're concerned is because the, 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 the movement which has put these new policies on the federal agenda is very clearly dominated by Northern voices, right? So had they been the ones to put this stuff on the national agenda, maybe they would have looked at things differently. But I mean, George Washington had put this on the national agenda. I mean, there had been in the past Southerners who wanted this sort of thing and they got nowhere with Southern colleagues because they just, they, they understood that the deal was the federal government doesn't get to do anything unless we say it's okay for it to do it. The planters are also too busy reading, you know, their, their Aristotle and Xenophon instead of the, the agricultural press, the scientific agricultural press that, that you Right, described. right. I mean, they, and they also have this vision of like, well, what the hell do we need the federal government for? You know, we have these large plantations. We'll, we'll just decide what, what kind of experience we want to do. And then we'll like command the people to do it. And, um, I mean, the, the enslaved people, right? I, I guess, let me, let me put it this way. I mean, if, if there hadn't been a civil war, like would they have been able to maintain their position indefinitely? Yeah, who, who knows? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but uh, I think they're, they are genuinely concerned about um, 
the uh, creation of new federal agencies that are going to be staffed with these kind of uh, uh, free labor northern types. Just a, sort of returning back to the to the to the north for a second, the de- the developmental process there. I was just really fascinated by this chapter you had on on Henry Carey and uh, you know especially the the like sort of natural metaphors that are not even metaphors, I suppose. Like you talk, you know, he describes this like manure system or manure economy where like everything is linked with each other. And like, you know, there's this, you know, pure, beautiful symbiosis between the farmers and the, and the cities who are, you know, literally passing, you know, hay one direction and manure the other direction. And then um, I know it was very sort of, yeah, ecological or like, you know, presages some of this like thinking today in environmental con- uh, context. I just was really fascinated with that. And I was, I was curious if you could talk a little bit more about either about him or sort of how these arguments came about. Yeah. So, I mean, Kerry is a, is a fascinating character um, who is, I mean, he's sort of absurd in a lot of respects and reading him today. It's, it's, it's sometimes, you, you know, it's sort of challenging to take him seriously in some respects, but I mean, he, you know, and, and, the comments that have been made about him by that were made by about him by contemporaries. So like, you know, Marx laughed at him, but he also said he's the only original American thinker, you know, on the economy, (laughs) you know, John Stuart Mill just thought he was completely absurd. Um, But he was sort of felt like he was forced to refute him. My favorite comment comes from Schumpeter, who says that he made uh, negative contributions to economic analysis, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but nevertheless said that he had a great vision and that, you know, basically he had the right idea. He just had no, he just executed it absolutely horribly. Right. So, you know, Kerry's fundamental idea is that, um, the world, the economy isn't really governed by scarcity. There's uh, plenty as long as it can be, uh, techno, you know, uh, exploited technologically. And the only limits on the economy are like that are technological ones, really. Is that um, true? Is that true? <laughs> there, I mean, there's there's been a long tradition. You know, you guys are at Chicago, so some of you guys know Frederick Alberton Janssen. He's he is maybe he's been writing. He's written about this long-standing sort of back and forth between what he calls the um, the cornucopian and the uh, I forget what the what the other ones are, but the, you know the scarcity and the plenty sort of view, mm-hmm. right? And there's a there's been a back and forth for centuries, really. Um, so Kerry is definitely on the cornucopian side, mm-hmm. and uh, he's concerned with refuting Malthus and Ricardo. You know, Malthus has this population dire population prognostication, and Ricardo thinks that people will inevitably worse from move from like the best to the le- less fertile grounds, and this will raise rents and et cetera. So um, in order to uh, refute this, Kerry comes up with this uh, ingenious sort of theory that uh, actually, you know, people um, learn, they, they improve their land over time by learning how to exploit it better. And that a key part of this is recycling nutrients, you know, back to land. And that this means that farmers and, you know, industry should be as close as possible. And so, you know, some environmental historians have actually sort of um, rehabilitated uh, Kerry, mm-hmm. you know, for this uh, recently. You know, I find the argument to be like not entirely sincere. I think it's, you know, uh, highly developed, but, you know, basically mobilized to support a pre-existing view. Mm-hmm. Um, he proves correct in some important ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, the Malthusian limits that were, you know, that Malthus predicted just, you know, they were not borne out at all. Whoops. You know? Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, Malthusian predictions have fared very badly for 200 years now. And uh, that's not to discount, you know, serious uh, environmental uh, problems, obviously, in climate change today. But, um, you know, they just haven't been borne out. So, um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the signif- one of the, the key significances I find in this, um, this idea that Kerry has that, you know, the, the exchange of nutrients 
between city and country is essential is that it's really a way of bringing it's it's a way to to deepen this alliance between manufacturers and farmers and his vision of technological progress is deeply anti-slavery right because he views he's sort of in this classical tradition that views slavery as unproductive or at least like not technologically progressive right yeah, particularly not technologically progressive, right? That it's that it it stultifies technological development. Um, yeah, I guess I guess for a Keynesian show, maybe the more relevant uh, critique or sort of view today, I mean, right, is not that slavery itself was sort of technologically that the slaveholders were, you know, um, ideologically backward that they right that they were not interested in technology because they were you know traditionalists. Um, but that the markets were just not there because the the countryside was not dense enough um, and the income wasn't there among, uh, you know, there, there just wasn't a consuming class uh, in the South for broad-based, the kind of te- uh, technological development that would lead to things like mass production, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, I mean, they, yeah, they, I... they were probably causing underconsumption. Uh, and and I think one of the things that you point out in your book that I thought was really great uh, is sort of the way that different um, economic strategies map on to different spatial visions of politics. And you say that like, you know, so the Northerners kind of had this nationalist vision where uh, industry and farmers cooperate to produce a home market. Uh, but slaveholders saw themselves as kind of an empire on the Atlantic periphery that was part of the global capitalist system. And it was sort of that larger system they had their eye on, which just means pursuing export demand and not developing the consumptive capacities at home, which is all, yeah, again, ultimately something you can't control, which means that there's going to be inevitable limits to the slaveholder development model. Maybe to bring it to the the current day, given, because uh, we're running out of time here, given the events of yesterday, but we're recording this on uh, January 7th. So the, the attempted coup at the Capitol just happened yesterday and we're all still processing it. And, you know, you're an historian, so maybe it's not too fair to ask you to analyze current events uh, too closely, but what do you think the history of the civil war tells us about politics today? First of all, let me say that I think the president should be removed from office uh, immediately for inciting uh, insurrection against the constituted authorities of the United States and that uh, Hawley and Cruz at least should be censured and, and maybe worse. What does the civil war have to tell us about now? I mean, well, I'll tell you, I mean, my my view of the, the cause of the Civil War is that um, it, it's fundamentally about slavery, of course. There's a divergence between these two large sections of the country. It's very important that it's geographically divided, right? If there had been right. these kind of um, uh, divisions, but they were interspersed all over the country, you, you wouldn't have gotten this this political formation that leads to Civil yep, War. Fully agree. Uh, but... But the, in, in many ways, the, the most interesting question to ask about the antebellum period is why did the Civil War break out when it did? So, like, why didn't it happen in um, 1820 over the Missouri uh, comprom- uh, Missouri crisis, for instance, or some other point? And my analysis of that is that um, after the Missouri crisis in 1819-1820, which really brought out um, all of the pro and anti-slavery arguments to get used later on, um, uh, politicians... Uh, were still more or less in control of things. Um, and they decided that they, 
Um, they need to smooth things over. And that the best, what emerges from that is the party, the, the modern two-party system. And the key to that two-party system is that both parties, the Democrats and the Whigs, have members in both the North and the South. And that effectively gives Southerners a veto within each party over any kind of, you know, like real anti-slavery politics, right? So, um, uh, and particularly this, this is important for a presidential nomination. So like nobody can gain the presidential nomination in each party unless they conciliate the Southern wing of the party, right? So uh, abolitionists uh, in the 1840s uh, correctly uh, diagnosed the situation and begin to work for the dissolution of the Whig party. And they're not the only reason that that happens, um, but they, you know, they're, they're ready when the Whigs sort of fall uh, apart there's an interlude with this thing called the Know Nothing Party, but let's not get into that right now. What emerges is the Republican Party, which is an all-Northern party, not an abolitionist, but an anti-slavery party, uh, certainly not a party for racial equality, but one that is you know, opposed to, to slavery in, in any case. What's really important, I think, about the 1850s when the Republican Party emerges is that the media landscape has changed very significantly from the 1820s. In the 1820s, you had uh, a media landscape that was composed of newspapers that were party organs. And by the 1850s, you have a much broader public sphere, one that includes, um, you know, for instance, the agricultural press, right, the specialized agricultural press, the one that includes a bunch of abolitionists, specialized abolitionist newspapers, you know, um, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, this runaway bestseller, it starts out being serialized in an abolitionist newspaper, and then it gets picked up by other newspapers, right? And so, so the, the, the change in the media landscape allows a whole bunch of new voices into the public sphere, they raise new issues on the public agenda, and the parties are much less able to control the discussion. In the 1830s and 40s, they effectively suppressed the slavery issue uh, pretty effectively, right? Um, when it was brought up, they pushed it aside. They pushed other issues to the forefront. By the 1850s, they're just not able to do that anymore. And, and the thing that bears comparison to today is the, the changed media landscape that we're living in, which there, there is, no one is in control, right? No one is in control of uh, what gets out there into the public sphere. And so a lot of new issues get out, a lot of new voices get heard, a lot of, you know, segments of, of society and the electorate that haven't spoken before are now in a position to uh, demand what they want to demand and no one can shut them up, right? And and so that that's different. But I, but I think that because, um, you know, the divide is not two giant blocks of the country, but rather the sort of urban rural divide and it's also overlaid over some regional divides, uh, a repeat of uh, the 1860s is not in the cards. Yeah, I mean, part of the the sort of intellectual history of, uh, you know, political economic ideas that you do in the book, um, this Republican synthesis, part of the power of that is that it's able to conciliate, um, you know, urban working populations with rural farmers. And that really kind of underpins the Republican Party, that, as you described. I feel like that contradiction today is also playing out between you know, modern cities, coastal cities in the U.S. as sites of just consumption and and low low wage service jobs, uh, versus uh, you know the the hotbeds of a lot of the right wing reaction and the the kind of populist you know patriot uh, sort of factions that you see uh, supporting Trump, where they're on you know they're in the hinterlands, they're really on the urban fringe of cities. They're all exurbs, yeah, exurbs, and they commute to cities for their jobs, but the, but their their politics are really formed by their their kind of local identities and. I feel like there's, do we need a kind of new political economic sort of uh, synthesis, I guess, that can kind of reintegrate, you know, cities and their hinterlands? And is that kind of what you point to, I guess, in, in the book that's happening in the 1850s? Yeah, I mean, that's, um, 
I, you know, I don't, I don't know if I don't feel all that competent to talk about the actual political economy today. I mean, my, my understanding, for instance, is that uh, exurban areas and rural areas, I mean, there's agriculture, but most people are employed in manufacturing or, uh, you know, some, something like that, right? Non-agricultural jobs these days. Um, and so it's, it's, yeah, a, it's more, it's, more people play World of Warcraft than farm today. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, it's that's it, a different situation. I also think that you know, the northern countryside in the eighteen forties and fifties, there are places that are doing poorly, but there are places that are doing very well, um, and that are uh, you know sort of well positioned to to um, trade effectively with the with the cities and to enjoy some of the benefits of. So you know, one of the differences in the eighteen fifties and like the eighteen seventies, eighties, and nineties when you, there's a lot of talk about the the crisis of rural society is that there's no electricity yet in the cities in the 1840s and 50s right there the the this the city of 1850 is not the modern metropolis of 1880 and 1890 with the arc lights and you know or before that you know really get fully gas lit and, and all that so 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 the disconnect between standards of living is um it's it's not clear cut. And it's not clear that farmers have a lower, in fact, they may have a higher standard of living in many ways than these cities, which are uh, unhealthy places uh, in many respects. Right. So um, whereas today, you know, to, you know, the, the, the populations that we're talking about, the exurban and rural populations, I mean, from, I, I guess some of them are doing really, really badly socioeconomically, their standards of living have been deteriorating. In other cases, it seems like you have people who are um, doing perfectly well and it's just a, you know, low taxes kind of thing. So I, I just don't know enough to say, you know, where the majorities are, what the proportions are today. But I mean, I guess I, I will say that with respect to uh, the effects of globalization, they, they have some negative effects on uh, the domestic economy and that um, the national framework for thinking about the economy is, is remains um, an essential one, right? You know, without, you know, w w without, um, we, Sort of, what's the word I'm, I'm thinking of? Um, sort of. Uh, well, so uh, we fully agree that uh, that a national democratic developmentalism is the kind of progressive politics going forward. Specifically, ones focused on the spatial politics of the city. Yeah, so I mean, like, we don't want to descend into like you know nationalist, uh, um, you know, jingoism or whatever, right? But I mean, you know, the, no, this the, is the, the antidote to that. Economy yeah. and the space. The space of the economy and the space of the state, you know, correspond in important ways and they have to be treated as corresponding in, in those ways. Well, and it just, I mean, the, the thing that I thought was just so, you know, genius politically about the developmental synthesis that the Republicans did in the 1850s is just like, you know, creating the sense that we're all in this together and that like, you know, the city depends on the countryside and the countryside depends on the city and we rise or fall as one. And like, you know, I think sort of separate from the economic argument of whether that is the case today or whether it should be the case or whatever. There's just sort of like, you know, from a like national unity perspective, that that's a really useful thing to, it's a really useful understanding to have sort of independent of, of how exactly it maps onto to economic reality. Yeah. So like, I, yeah, I hope that like my sort of uh, ambivalence uh, comes through, you know, a little bit in these chapters because you know some stuff I find appealing about this and there's some stuff that I find, um, yeah, not so appealing, um, or or you know, kind of. Uh, yeah, do you uh, want the word? Should, not we, should we finish on some of the the dark sides of the success of the uh, the agrarian movement? I mean, like the Grange, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So the yeah, in the epilogue of the book, I go after the Civil War, and um, I, I I argue that well, I, I, first of all, I draw on the work of uh, Charles Postel, uh, who published a book recently uh, called Equality, uh, which may be of interest to you guys as well. Which looks at um, various movements, um, the Grange, that, that is the, the patrons of husbandry, uh, women's movements, and the um, the Knights of Labor. Uh, in the period from uh, the end of the Civil War to the late 19th century, right? And he said that they're all sort of aiming for equality, but they have vastly different uh, ideas about what equality um, is and, and frankly, who it excludes, right? So the, 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 the first three chapters are, um, I think, really important work on the Grange, which emerges uh, essentially out of the offices of the USDA um, uh, after the Civil War as a new kind of farmers organization that will link uh, farmers to... Um, uh, the, to the USDA, uh, to the federal government, um, and uh, uh, and link and, and and sort of turn the federal government towards the benefit of farmers, and they will become the kind of controlling power. They will finally exert their power as the majority of the country, and is uh, you know becomes more I think more explicitly uh, aligned with an anti-reconstruction vision, right? So the the, the idea is they're going to connect Western and Southern farmers uh, against uh, Northeastern industrialists and you know financiers. Uh, and uh, the the reconstruction agenda, and what I say is, you know, ironically, the Civil War by destroying slavery removes this block, this you know, this this real this block to white solidarity, right? Because northern farmers were opposed uh, to slavery, and they were especially opposed to slaveholders. But once those slaveholders no longer have uh, slaves and can present themselves as not planters, but now they're farmers, and you know, northern farmers retain a whole lot of uh, anti-black animus. Uh, even if some of those views were were modified uh, to a significant extent during the Civil War, but you know a lot of them snapped back afterwards. A lot of them never changed that much at all. The Grange becomes this very effective tool for linking those uh, groups together. The USDA, in many ways, is a, is a huge missed opportunity of Reconstruction because it could have been used to help free people uh, not just acquire land but farm it effectively. You know. And it could have learned from them, right? These were the real experts of Southern agriculture and no effort as far as I can tell was made to learn what they knew. Um, so, um, but I, more research I think needs to be done about this. You know, the administrative histories of the USDA just sort of skip over these years, but there, there's a lot I think to be unearthed there. All right, first year grad students, if you're listening, you, you've got a project. All right, should we just leave it there? Leave it there. Thank you guys, this was, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, this has been great. Yeah, uh, glad to do it. Reviving Growth Keynesianism is produced by me, Nick Johnson, with assistance from researchers Jackson Overpeck, Sophie Stuckenberg, and Rohan Venkat. The podcast is supported financially by the University of Chicago Program for Professional Advancement and Training for Humanists and Humanistic Social Scientists, the Micro Metcalf Internship Program, as well as the University of Michigan UROP Program. If you enjoyed this discussion, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts and consider leaving us a positive review which will help us connect with more engaged listeners like you. More information on our ideas can be found at revivinggrowthkeynesianism.org. There you can also find our Patreon. We would greatly appreciate if you chose to support us. All donations allow us to put out more content for thoughtful listeners like you. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.